So it feels nice in here. It's good to be with you. So the um, the secret of uh, life this is big. <laughs> secret of life, Oscar Wilde says, is to. Um, appreciate the pleasure of being terribly, terribly deceived. To appreciate the pleasure of being terribly deceived. And on uh, this Dharma path, um, we we come to, uh, to love our mistakes. Not, not merely to be unashamed of our mistakes, but actually to love them and to take something like delight. And when we find out that we've been deceived in some way or confused or when we step out of self-deception, it is destabilizing and disorienting, but exhilarating. Vertiginous, kind of like exhilarating, right on the edge of something. And when you, when you come to, to love yourself deeply, and, and what we mean by that is, is like, is really that um, we're stepping out of self-view when the identifications of self as this or that or the other soften, a certain kind of love for oneself arises. When we love ourselves, um, the investigation and the learning is something in our heart is freed up and there's almost like this reckless abandon in just like learning. No matter what we find, we have this trust that it will not be a cause to love ourselves less. And so self, self-discovery becomes uh, is kind of um, this wild welcome adventure when when the revelations are are deep it can feel almost like being sort of born again um, this is uh camus on travel um his famous lines when what gives value to travel is fear it is the fact that at a certain moment when we're far away from our own country we're seized by a vague fear and an instinctive desire to go back to the protection of old habits. At that moment, we are feverish, but also porous. The slightest touch makes us quiver to the depths of our being. Retreat is a form of travel. Right? If you haven't noticed it's a form of travel and 
we're leaving our home base and away from all the familiarities from our habits and assumptions. And it's very hard to see our mind when our habit energies run unobstructed, when we're just can exert our will in these or that way. And so you actually have to create some friction in the system in order to see some of the habit energies. And here uh, we can see ourselves in a new light. So wise view sets the, the foundation for our path, wise view. And when when the view is diluted, that seeps into our intentions and our effort, into our, our mindfulness. In a way, the less, um, the less diluted we become, the closer freedom feels. And there is, there is, you know, Max was articulating this, this, uh, the, the paradoxes of Dharma. And, um, and maybe we can say that there is a certain kind of, of progress, but the progressing mind is a manipulation of the moment. The gaining mind is a manipulation of the moment. And freedom is often much closer than the gaining mind supposes. So we're focused on on delusion, you know, and this this, this theme, delusion, delusion. And I appreciate that because um, uh, when Max suggested that as a as a theme, um, greed and hatred get a lot more ink. You know, it's it's like uh, the wellsprings of suffering: greed, hatred, delusion. Um, and it kind of makes sense that we wind up talking more about grasping about aversion than about delusion, because where is that exactly? And so uh, when a delusion is, is described in some, in different ways, um, sometimes teachers talk about delusion, like, okay, well, let's try to get a grip on this. So sometimes teachers talk about delusion simply as being lost in thought. To be deluded is to be lost in thought. And the moment when the kind of bubble of discursive thinking is punctured and we recognize that we have been living a different life for the last 10 seconds or sometimes 10 years, but when we realize we've been living in the the cocooned bubble of discursive thought, 
and that bubble pops, we know something new. That is um, one way of describing waking up from delusion. And when those bubbles pop, the thought that just had entranced us is is um, it's de-reified. So what had been the only world that existed becomes a passing, fleeting, insubstantial mental event that is known in the light of awareness. The philosopher uh, Metzinger. Let us say that you first identify with an internal model of the self as currently standing at a red uh, traffic light. Yeah, so there you are at a traffic light. You identify with the model of the self as currently there, waiting for it to turn green. Then an internal simulation of yourself as buying tofu and bananas pops up as you remember that you need to buy tofu and bananas. Now you identify with the protagonist of this inner narrative. Phenomenologically, for a short moment, you literally become someone else. For a brief moment, you zone out completely And this constitutes an unexpected and involuntary shift in identification from a person in front of the light to a person in a grocery store. Then perceptual coupling may quickly be restored and you re-identify with the driver, a model of the self as an attentional agent checking to see if the lights turn green. This is the end of your mind-wandering episode. The driver is real again, and the shopper is only virtual. The beginning of every mind-wandering episode is marked by the collapse of our epistemic agent model, epistemic to the capacity to know the collapse of the epistemic agent model. There at the, f- at the red light, somewhat awake, and the, with the capacity to know, that collapses. The end of every episode of Mind Wandering is marked by the reemergence of a new epistemic agent model the meta-aware self. I think, concludes, I think it could be heuristically fruitful to analyze mind-wandering as a loss of mental autonomy. Loss of mental autonomy. Wherever we go, whether it's to buy tofu or bananas, whether we go to the grocery store or we go to heaven or we go to hell, we 
are on that ride. And don't know that we're thinking the sense of self just becomes the shopper or becomes the you fill in the blank. Right? And so to from this perspective to dispel delusion is simply to wake up to that bubble of thought collapsing and to re-inhabit a sense of the the meta-aware self. Okay, now I'm back here at IRC on a retreat. Now we can interrogate that further, and we will. But from this perspective, delusion is the, the, the absence of complete identification with thought. One take on it. Then there's the the, the Buddhist um, personality types. This kind of subsequent commentaries from after the Buddha. And um, so the research group said even even at the level of a single celled organism, behavior must necessarily fall into one of three possible categories. Move towards, approach, move away, withdraw, or neither, no response, ignore. These three basic options cannot be reduced further and therefore would seem to represent the most parsimonious description of behavioral tendencies. Move towards, move away, ignore. Greed, hatred, delusion. Yeah. Move towards, avoid, you know, move towards pleasantness, move away from unpleasantness, ignore. The third category, delusion. And from this perspective, greed and aversion, hatred, have very strong motivational, uh, in you know, juice. Delusion is marked by the absence of strong motivation. It's not approach or avoid. It's in the ignore category, and. This means that it's actually a little bit close in a way. To, it's not equanimity, but it can mimic equanimity. But of course, there are problems because the lack of attunement to pleasant and unpleasant makes it hard to know what to do makes it hard to know what's worth pursuing, what's worth avoiding. And so classically, delusion is characterized by a certain kind of indecisiveness, looking for data. Where do I decide? What's the basis from which I know how to live, know how to be in this moment, know what to pursue, 
what to let go. And so, um, a third kind of model of delusion is is something more more pervasive even than either of these prior examples. It's something closer to to ignorance of Ija, said to be the kind of the bedrock of our suffering of Ija. And ignorance is generally said to be about the Four Noble Truths, that there is suffering, that there is a cause of suffering, that there is an end to suffering, there's a path, the Eightfold Path. Ignorance is generally said to be an ignorance about that, a misunderstanding about dukkha and its end. But I would say it's, ignorance is more generally just about losing the plot, you know, losing the plot. And it's very easy to lose the plot, to lose track of what's important, of what happiness is, of what this or that experience can and cannot do for our heart. And so here delusion is a kind of basic confusion or bewilderment, losing the plot. It is um, exceedingly rare for a member of the Nixon administration to be quoted in a Dharma hall. (laughs) But uh, Donald Rumsfeld, There are known knowns, and there are things that we know we know. There are known unknowns, that is to say there are things that we we now know we don't know. But there are also unknown unknowns, things we do not know we don't know. And... The Dharma path is very much about unknown unknowns. Greed feels like the kind of bottomless hunger, sense of incompletion, you know, hole in the heart kind of that won't be filled by this or that. And hatred is like boiling fire, conflagration, heart on fire. These are, these, this does not take a lot of mindfulness to detect, right? Greed, very clear. Hatred, very clear. But if, if greed feels like the, a hole and hatred feels like fire, delusion, what does delusion feel like? Delusion feels exactly like the truth. If we knew it as delusion, we would not hold it, right? And so even right now, I'm doing my best 
to siphon my wisdom from my delusion, but the truth is you're getting both. You can have a refund, you know. (laughs) You're getting both because I don't know the difference, which is fucked up. So we talk about uh, self, self-doubt self often, and that's real. But um, as far as I can tell, societal functioning is much more um, da- damaged by overconfidence. Overconfidence. And um, so much kind of violence and destructive behavior, corrosive relationship, like so much of it arises out of various states of certainty, of overconfidence. And so the question is like, okay, how do we live with the permanent possibility of being wrong? How do we actually live with that? What, what kind of life is engendered when we appreciate that permanent possibility. So for one, our Dharma life, our life becomes a kind of continuous feedback loop of, of doing things and, rece- and and taking feedback, receiving life as feedback, this kind of open feedback loop. Just everything, learning from everything. Everything is teaching us, Ajahn Chah said. Everything is teaching us. It entails a kind of humility and non-defensiveness you know, who, who said we're supposed to know? Who said that? Yeah, we don't know. And we, we don't have to feel ashamed of not knowing. We make a practice of absorbing wisdom from everywhere, everyone, everywhere, everyone. And and for me, it, it's a certain sense of like yeah, I do feel like like everyone, everyone knows something deep, important, poignant, that I do not know. It often doesn't take long hearing from somebody to detect that. But I have a certain confidence, yeah, if we kept talking, I would discover it and I could be informed by that and I could grow. Some of my ignorance would be dispelled. 
and no one no one has a a, a 360 degree view of themselves like no one you know I, I i can never see exactly where i stand i can never see exactly where and so um for me it's been a kind of like yeah very much buried in in dharma in a beautiful way and then uh, kind of in recent years circling back to appreciate kind of like all the different channels of wisdom all the different lineages of wisdom and love in this world of art and literature and nature and science and philosophy and you know all these things and just just to feel porous to it all and feel, you know like sometimes I, i'm so not not you know musical music hasn't played a big role in my life i you know i i'm very not talented musically um but when I go to a concert and I see someone singing or playing the piano, it's like very apparent to me how one could devote their entire life to it. Or I hear someone talk about the stars. Very apparent. We currently see a, 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 a sphere around us extending 46 billion light years in all directions, known as the observable universe. Light from galaxies beyond the sphere hasn't ha- yet had time to reach us. On our leading cosmological theory, the rate at which new galaxies become visible will decline, and those currently more than 63 billion light years away will never become visible from the Earth. We could call the, the region within that distance the eventually observable universe. Accelerating expansion also puts a limit on what we can ever affect. If today you shine a light out in space, it could reach any galaxy that's currently less than 16 billion light years away. But galaxies further than this are being pulled away so quickly that neither light nor anything else we might send could ever affect them. That's so much wonder. And maybe part of what I'm saying is that to uh, to wake up from delusion is um, we count on each other deeply, deeply. Somebody said that in in one spiritual community, not Buddhist, um, enlightenment is considered a property of the group, not the individual. It's very beautiful. So delusion, delusion creeps into our, our effort, our mindfulness. We, um, 
come to Dharma with problems, or it feels like we have problems, and quite naturally adopt the kind of perspective of me and my brokenness, and then some future self that is unbroken. Max was pointing to this. And um, the kind of, some of the pitfalls that happen in this realm where we start from a, a, a kind of view of brokenness. We start from the view of self. And, um, and then understandably rally a lot of willfulness, efforting, striving to kind of cope with the brokenness. And somewhere um, kind of early in my own practice, the sense of, of effort, virya, virya, energetic vigor, diligence, um, just got yoked together with the sense of self, virya and sakya ditti, self-view. It's hard to resist this, you know, you kind of hear these energetic descriptions of practice, of dedicating one's heart to it, of, you know, not not before this turns to, uh, you know, it's just bones and sinews left. Will I give up the quest for enlightenment? You hear these things and it's like, okay, I got to double down on the willfulness, you know. It's like, I can at least stay up till 9.30, you know, like, right? And, uh, and it's fine, it's beautiful, it's actually necessary to be willing to make like deep effort, to be willing to make deep effort. But we try to purify where our effort comes from so that it's less entangled with becoming and self-view and the claustrophobia of willfulness. In that mode um, can be like the sense of, uh, a certain sense of like Dharma as, as a, a performance or something, maybe performing for the teacher, maybe performing for some in, internalized view, yeah? That's looking at you in some way in your own head, some idealized vision of what you're supposed to be. And um, Dharma is not not a performance. It's like a very deep break, rest from the performative aspects of self. And so the, the encouragement is just to, to soften there, to you do not need to perform for us or for your own inner audience, spectator. For me, 
it feels like um, at the core of willfulness, at the core of willfulness is a certain kind of, um, a certain kind of rage. It's not Dhamma Chanda, like the longing for the Dharma that animates some of my effort in my own practice, in my own retreats. It's it's not this pure, just longing for the Dharma. That's in there, but mixed in with that is this kind of like white hot core of a certain kind of rage. And it's the rage that says like, I will do this. I will not be stopped. And I think on the one hand, it's probably propelled a lot of my practice in ways I have not been able to detect. And no doubt there's um, some aspects of that, that source of motivation that's been useful, it's brought some fruit. But it leaves intact this kind of unquestioned ball of clinging that is so insistent on being able to change things, make things happen, affect things, exert itself, you know? But um, what, what does practice look like on the other side of your willfulness? Is there a way of m- mobilizing effort, energy, that does not kind of come out of that? Ajahn uh, Sajita says, you know, he's, he was talking about self, the self-criticism program, the controlling program, and then he said the meditator is a program. Meditator is a program. So who, what are you taking the meditator to be? And what does practice look like when the ego is all out of moves? Part of the function of retreat is it breaks us down sometimes. And we kind of hit this point where we're like flailing, flailing, flailing. And then there's this appreciation of like, I'm all out of moves here. Okay. It was not plan A, but yeah, I'll surrender. And the effort 
that arises out of surrender. It's not that there's no effort, but the effort that arises out of surrender is a very potent, efficient way of practicing. In other words, um, there's uh, yeah, there's em- emphasizing the receptivity rather than affecting the world. There was a um, classic experiment um, where people, I think people who was sh- shoppers, were given two pieces of clothing. They didn't know, but they were identical. And then we're asked, like, which do you prefer? And people just would say, like, well, obvi B, you know, it's like softer and the fabric is so luxurious. And like, no, they're actually both polyester, you know, or whatever, you know, it's like, but like, okay, what, what happened there? You know, what happened there? Um, as sometimes called uh, confabulation, confabulation, where memory, memory or rationale is concocted out of thin air. And like associated with, you know, in neurological conditions where that's prominent, right? And sometimes it's called like honest lying, colloquially, like honest lying. No intent to deceive at all, but confabulation, a certain kind of fabrication of why, why. And from a Buddhist perspective, maybe a lot of our life is confabulation. A lot of our life, a lot of the story we tell about our life is confabulation. There's a, um, a science fiction writer who said, we're not rational animals, we're rationalizing animals. Rationalizing. And um, a lot of what we're rationalizing is our greed and our hatred. We're rationalizing it. But this is subtle and slippery our mind is very slippery and many of our habits are transparent in the sense that we do not perceive them. Part of retreat is built so that you collide with certain habits and they become opaque rather than transparent. Um, research, another researcher, um, Human mind, um, Tim Wilson, no, the human mind operates largely out of view of its owners, possibly because that's the way it evolved to, to work initially and because that's the way it works best under many circumstances. 
without an efficient, powerful, and fast means of understanding and acting on the world, we'd be stuck pondering every little decision, such as whether to put our left or right foot forward first as the world sped by. But as a result, we are often strangers to ourselves, unable to observe directly the workings of our minds. Curiously, people seem unaware of their own unawareness, rarely answering, I don't know, when asked to explain their decisions. People freely give reasons for their preferences, even when it is clear that these reasons are confabulations. We, um, we're too satisfied with the stories we tell about our life. Many of the whys, why I chose this, did that, feel this, believe that. And in a way where we want to get sensitive to sensitive to the subtle movements of our mind, the ways that we confabulate, pull a fast one on ourselves. And so the question is like, well, how do we perceive that which we do not perceive? How do we, how do we notice what we have not been able to notice? How do we make transparent what is, what is, what make opaque what is transparent? And the first piece in this for me um, is uh, that we just become just much less moralistic about our inner life. All the the moralism of the shoulds and what we should feel and be in these things. All the kind of unspiritual pieces, parts of us. And we want to get sensitive to, to our body. When we lose awareness, lose contact with our body, like right now, when we lose contact with our body and get buried in narrative, when we can't, when we don't have any connection, okay, my, my feet, in the back of my body, and the tension there, and the ease there, when the, the, the sense of embodiment just collapses into the point of our own rumination, this is a warning, yeah? prone to delusion when we're that disconnected, disembodied. And even though it's hard to make opaque, what was transparent, the, the clue is often in our feeling, Vedna, feeling tone, our affect. It's hard to tell when we're self-deception, but we can become sensitive to the tugs and pulls of pleasant and unpleasant, 
And part of what we're looking to detect is the way that our pleasant, unpleasant happens beneath the radar of our awareness and then engenders a view. The way that clinging is stimulated and engenders a view. It gives birth to a view. And so equanimity with greed and aversion actually cuts through delusion too, weakens delusion too. Equanimity with greed and hatred cuts through delusion too because what happens is that delusion launders our greed and our hatred. Delusion serves to justify and dignify our greed and our hatred. When I launder money, Yeah, yeah, I'll take ownership. When I launder money. When one, without sila, launders. When one launders money, dirty money make it clean, right? Okay. When you launder greed, you make it look like excitement. When you launder hatred, you make it look like mm, righteousness. And so these subtle movements of the mind justifying, rationalizing, confabulating, laundering our greed, our hatred, And if we can have equanimity with that feeling, with the affect, with the clinging, the longing, we do not have to fabricate and build stories that justify the clinging. Perceptions that launder and dignify our defilements. And so we come to really listen to to feeling really listen to it. We don't have to like it, but we're attentive to it such that it doesn't require, it doesn't prime us in a way. We don't have to launder something. And so, the awareness becomes more and more receptive and subtle and attuned to these movements, these very basic building blocks, movements of pleasant, unpleasant, because so much is born out of our unconscious relationship with that, out of the absence of equanimity with pleasant and unpleasant. And the mind 
has to catch up, launder those forces. And so the awareness becomes more subtle. We keep, we don't take the self for granted. That example, being at the light in a car, waiting for it to go green, the simulation of being at the grocery store, tofu and bananas, okay, that thought bubble collapses. And in some sense, we're returned to the truth in knowing that we're there behind the wheel at the light. But in another sense, that's also just another simulation of I amness. There's delusion in that too. And so we keep, the awareness keeps backing up, broadening. Okay, who, who am I taking myself to be now? Don't do this at a red light, but what, what, how is the sense of self coagulating in this moment? We keep backing up. Until more and more what had been transparent becomes opaque. And you can't go back forever. Yeah? But we, we come to uh, more and more radical openness, kind of no view, no self, not claiming anything as true or false, me, mine. But there is wakefulness. We're very far from asleep. Un, unpartitioned epistemic space. The phrase a philosopher, uh, again, Metzinger used. Unpartitioned epistemic, the, the capacity to know. Unpartitioned. Maybe that gets us um, out of the game of making claims at all, you know. Maybe less diluted, more wisdom arises from that. But then we have to say something, we have to act. And... Um, 
the possibilities of delusion where it's never to be dispelled. So we have to stay awake. We have to keep learning, keep willing to be wrong and to grow from that. So offer this for your consideration. Just sit for a moment. Just taking your cues from the silence. So thank you. Um, yeah, please, uh, as a spirit of uh, all of this, please uh, pick up what's useful and uh, and leave the rest behind. <laughs>